0: Less than three weeks ago, Ryan Ashlock, pastor of the University City Church, was parked out in front of a Panera Bread store near his home in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was there like he usually is on a Monday evening about 10 o'clock to collect the unsold bread and the baked products that Panera Bread stores donate to local charities who then can take that and give that to the needy in their community. This time, however, he noticed that the area, which is isolated behind a large parking garage without any other buildings or businesses around it, was far darker and more deserted than it was normally. Later, he would learn that because of the new coronavirus restrictions, that that Panera store had closed an hour earlier than they usually did. Although all the lights were off and and the doors were locked up, after persistently looking around, he was finally able to get the attention of a couple of the last employees inside. And once they recognized him, they let him in a back door, and he began to pick up the day's supply of bread. So for about 10 or 15 minutes, he took bread from inside the store, out the back door, and loaded his van. And finally, when his van was full, he waved goodbye and closed the door and headed back across the parking lot with his keys in his hand. It was just at that moment that a group of four young men appeared out of the darkness of that deserted parking garage and they hollered at him, Hey, hold on a second! Pastor Ashlock uh, hesitated for a moment. After all, he was a pastor and they might need his help. But it turns out that those group of four young men were not looking for his help that night. As they got closer, they said, hey, do you have a smoke? And he quickly said no and turned to get in his van. But no sooner than he turned to get in his van that one of them yelled, get him! And the entire gang jumped him in the parking lot. As he was hit by one fist after another, Pastor Ashlock made a decision in that moment not to fight back. His glasses went flying, and very quickly, in a few minutes, he was lying on the ground. But the attack continued just as viciously as it started with. Finally, he yelled, Hey, I'm down already! I'm down already! But the blows continued to come, particularly to his head. After finally what seemed like an eternity, as he was yelling for help, finally one of the young men said, Hurry, let's get out of here! Get his keys! And just as quickly as they appeared, they grabbed his keys, jumped in his van, and sped away. Pastor Ashlock, beaten and bruised, scrambled to find his glasses. By the time he crawled back to the sidewalk, he finally called 911. Fortunately, his injuries were not life-threatening, just three large hematomas to his head. As he later reflected on his situation in a post on Facebook, He said this, My testosterone tells me that I should have put those guys in their place. I visualized all kinds of punches and kicks I could have thrown. But my rational brain knows I did the right thing by not fighting back. May God bring correction to those young men who beat me and stole my van before they lose their way completely. Pastor Ashlock's story reminds me of some words of wisdom my father gave me many years ago when I was a student in junior high, going through a difficult time. My dad said to me, son, times of adversity are moments in life that define us by revealing who we are. They're like a test that requires us to make an answer on a particular question. And sometimes in life, those questions are difficult. But the way in which we decide to respond reveals who we are, and those decisions then affect the trajectory of our entire life. Pastor Ashlock's decision not to meet violence with violence was one of those defining moments that revealed his identity, who he really was. And those moments come to all of us at different times and in in various ways in our lives. Sometimes those decisions we face seem small and inconsequential, and other times they clearly seem more significant. And at other times, those events that come to us are even larger, they affect a large number of people, so they don't just impact us personally, but they affect us also as a collective whole. I believe that we are living in one of those significant moments a time unparalleled in our generation. Other generations have faced their times of adversity, but at the moment, for this generation, that event seems to be the coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 has and is and will continue to shake us to the core. It stripped away our sense of security by disrupting the normalcy of life as we've known it. Schools have been shut down for the rest of the year. Graduations have been canceled or postponed or turned on to some sort of online event. People have lost jobs. They've taken cuts in their salary. Retirement accounts have been decimated. And over 150,000 grandparents, spouses, children, and other friends and families have lost their lives as a result of this current pandemic. While this pandemic is unique in our lifetime, it's not unique in human history. Over the last two millennia, the records of history tell us that there have been other generations who've encountered pandemics very similar to the one we're living through today. And during that time, during those times, Christians like us, like you and me, our spiritual ancestors, as it were, were tested. And not just individually, but as a church as a whole. So today, in the brief moments that we have here together, I'd like for us to reflect on what we can learn from the experience of that cloud of witnesses that have gone before us during two particularly deadly pandemics. One from long ago, and one from more recent. I just finished reading a fascinating retelling of the fall of the Roman Empire, entitled, The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. The book, which was written back in 2017, long before our current crisis, is the first to examine the catastrophic role that uh, pandemic diseases played in bringing one of the greatest empires the world had ever known to its knees, the Roman Empire. Harper, the author of the book, makes the point that the romans liked to boast that through their military might and their advanced technology that they had conquered nature but how ironic was it in the end that it was ultimately infectious diseases that brought the great roman empire to its knees he tells in the book how an outbreak of smallpox killed roughly 11% of the 75 million inhabitants of the roman empire between the year 165 and the year 172. But as deadly as that pandemic was, it was followed by an even deadlier one in the year 249, a pandemic that historians call the Plague of Cyprian, named after an early Christian leader from North Africa who wrote extensively about the nature of this plague. He tells us that this plague arose from the heart of Africa, and in mere two years, it has spanned all across the entire Roman Empire, both east and west. But that did not simply ravage the empire for one flu season, but for 15 years, it ravaged that entire empire. According to Harper in his book, he says, "There was almost no province of Rome, no city, no house which was not attacked and emptied by this general pestilence. It was relentless, striking down both young and old. There was no age group that escaped its deadly grasp. Historical records tell us that the once mighty city of Alexandria said that they were so ravaged by the outbreak of this pandemic that 62% of their population decreased in that time span either through death or those who were fleeing the deadly pandemic. And that disease certainly was terrifying. Cyprian says that once the disease struck, that the strength of the body is dissolved. The bowels dissipate in a flow. A fire that begins in the inmost depths burns up into wounds in the throat. The intestines are shaken with continuous vomiting. The eyes are set on fire from the force of the blood. The infection of the deadly putrefaction cuts off the feet or the extremities of some. And as weakness prevails throughout and failures and losses of the body, the gait is crippled or the hearing is blocked or the vision is blinded. Evidence of just how deadly this pandemic was came to light about six years ago when archaeologists in Egypt discovered a mass burial site of victims from this plague. And they discovered that the Romans were so terrified of contracting this disease that before burying the bodies, they not only burned them in a great bonfire, but they also covered those bodies with a thick layer of lime which the Romans used as a disinfectant. Based on the symptoms that that Cyprian describes, modern scholars today believe that that infectious disease was either the result of, of a pandemic influenza, perhaps something like we're facing today, or some kind of Ebola virus. But unable to understand the nature of infectious disease at the time, Many Romans believed that it was the wrath of the gods, the pagan god Apollo, who was angry with the Romans because they weren't as as faithful in their worship of the pagan gods. Of course, this meant that Christians were not only ravaged at the time by the nature of the plague, but they also became victims of persecution at the same time. But what I find surprising and why I mention it this morning is that the outbreak of the plague and the persecution that accompanied part of it did not ravage the number of the church. Instead of the church dwindling and decreasing inside like the great city of Alexandria, the church began to multiply and to divide and to mushroom at that time and to grow gigantically. Why would the church grow in the midst of a persecution? Well, according to Irving in his book, it's not simply because the mass of deaths indicated just how powerless those pagan gods were nor was it simply because of the official beliefs of the Christian church but it was because in that time of adversity the Christians of that day chose to live a life of faith not a life of fear and so instead of hiding behind closed doors the church made a conscious decision To rise up and to reach out and care for those who were suffering during that pandemic. And not just their fellow Christians, but pagans and unbelievers as well. The church chose in that time to live a life of sacrificial love. And that pandemic revealed what the church really was. The visible body of Christ in their world. But this response by the ancient Christians at that time did not just happen by accident. Much of the response was due to the influential ministry of a Christian leader from North Africa known as Cyprian, the same man's name who's attached and associated with this plague. During the time, he wrote a very influential pamphlet entitled On Mortality. And in this pamphlet on mortality, he makes three key points that he appeals to the Romans of his day, the Christians of his day, to consider as they examined how they should live life in the face of a pandemic. So although his uh, pamphlet was written over 1,800 years ago, written in a very different language, it still speaks to us today living in similar times. In his pamphlet, he makes these points. First, Cyprian says, that is horrible and deadly has a disease that spreads across, taking the lives that people is. That as Christians, in that moment we should not be surprised, nor should we be afraid. After all, Jesus warned us in the last week of his life that we should expect just these kinds of events to appear as we await his return. In fact, Cyprian in his, in his pamphlet. He quotes the passage where Jesus speaks to his disciples, not in Matthew 24, but in Luke chapter 21, when he answers his disciples' questions about when will these things take place and when will Christ set up his kingdom? And so Cyprian quotes the passage that says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. In this passage, Jesus is telling his disciples that his entry into this world by taking flesh and blood upon himself... And ultimately, by laying his life down on Calvary, that his entry into this world marked a changing point in human history. It changed the trajectory of our planet. Jesus is saying here that life in this world as it is today will not continue forever, for we are living in the last days. And those last days began at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. His coming has forever changed the nature of this world. The countdown is on, the expiration date is set. This earth is on a march towards a final end when Christ will appear again. And Jesus says that all these events are signs that this world is a very broken place and that we should expect these sorts of events as we await Christ's return. Those events remind us just how broken this world is. They're windows that allow us to see what this world is all about. A world where individuals and nations for the thirst of power and control and privilege and Pleasure and might take advantage of other individuals and nations, and where even nature itself in this world cannot always be relied upon as a friend. I think if we're honest, we can admit that through the advances of modern technology, that it's made us feel like in this world today, particularly those of us who live in the northern hemisphere. It's made us feel like we have conquered nature. But really, in, in our generation, we've never really lived in a world without want. I mean, all the stores, right? The, the, the shelves of our stores have always been full. Unless perhaps there was a run on Doritos during some sort of sports championship. But not really any want or challenge in this world. If some sort of famine struck our, or the source of our food supply, we'll simply import our food from another location. So like the Romans of old, we believed that we have conquered nature. But with an outbreak of a pandemic that struck the world at the time of Cyprian or the events that we face today, through those events, nature reminds us that we are really not in control. But as vulnerable as we feel in times like these, we don't need to be afraid as Christians. Jesus didn't tell us that these times would come, wars, rumors of wars, famines and pestilences. Jesus didn't tell us those times would come in order to scare us. But so when those events did come, that we wouldn't have to worry. Because Jesus is saying that just as certain as those events are in this world today, so is the certainty of his return. And through the difficult times that we face in circumstances like this, we don't have to be afraid because Jesus has promised that he'll be with us during these trying times. And after all, as long as we have Jesus, we don't need to worry For Jesus has conquered the world. Besides, the worst that can happen to us in this world is death. Because Christ is risen, risen indeed, we don't even have to be afraid of death. For as Cyprian reminded the Romans of his day, Jesus tells us in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So in trying times like these, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised and we certainly don't need to be afraid. Cyprian then reminds us that we need to remember the blessed hope. It's important that we also remember that being a Christian does not mean that somehow that you and I will be miraculously or or divinely protected from experiencing danger or harm in this world, including the possibility of contracting an infectious disease or even dying from it. As Jesus said that we live in a world where the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And that means as long as we are part of this world, that we are susceptible to all the challenges that we see and experience in this world today. As much as each of us, to be honest, as much as each of us long to live a life of ease and comfort and pleasure and happiness without any worry about any kind of evil or danger, that's not the blessed hope. The blessed hope is that having endured the challenges and difficulties in this world, that you and I have the certainty that we'll be part of God's eternal kingdom And in that kingdom, death and sickness and disease need never threaten our lives nor separate us from the loved ones we love most. Nothing in this world compares to what awaits us in God's eternal kingdom that is on its way. As Christians, we don't need to be surprised, we don't need to be afraid we need to remember the blessed hope. And finally, he says, we need to live a life of sacrificial love. So instead of living in fear, we're called to live a life of faith. And that means that we're called to live out in the way we act in this world, the, the, what we, the content of what we believe. That rather than saying that these are the things that we hold dear, we're called also to live out what that means in the way we live, live in this world in these kind of trying times. During these turbulent times, the devil wants us to, be, to cower in fear behind closed doors. He wants us to be paralyzed because he knows in times like these, Jesus has better things planned for you and me. I found it fascinating that after Cyprian quoted the passage about wars and rumors of wars, that the final verse really is the key to how we're called to live at this time. For after going through all that, he adds this line, Jesus says, in verse 13. Jesus says, this, at this time, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. If there ever were a defining moment that should reveal who we are as Christians today, this is that time. We should be doing all in our power to care for those who are suffering and ministering to those who need our help during this pandemic. The devil knows this, so he wants, us to, he wants to undermine that opportunity we have to bear witness by filling us with fear. Cyprian, in addressing the Christians of his day, said that a pandemic, the outbreak of a pandemic, is a test, and here I quote, is a test, he says, whether those who are in health will tend to those who are sick, whether family and friends will care for each other, whether masters will show love to their servants who are languishing, and whether physicians will continue to care for the sick who need their desperate help because of the influential ministry of Cyprian, the Christians 1,800 years ago were not intimidated by the deadly situation of their day, but they rose up in acts of deliberate sacrificial love to care for those who needed their help at that time. And it was the demonstration of what Christians really were that attracted so many to the cause of Christ. Listen to how Kyle Harper, in his book, The Fate of Rome, describes what occurred at that point in time. He says, Christianity's sharpest advantage was its inexhaustible ability to forge kinship or family-like networks among perfect strangers based on an ethic of sacrificial love. The church boasted of being a new ethnos, a new nation, with all the implications of shared heritage and mutual obligation. Christian ethics turned the chaos of pestilence into a mission field. The vivid promise of the resurrection encouraged the faithful against the fear of death. Cyprian, in the heat of persecution and plague, pleaded with his flock to show love to the enemy. The compassion was conspicuous. Consequential. The Christian ethic was a blaring advertisement for the faith. The church was a safe harbor in the storm. What a powerful, what a powerful testimony. The second pandemic I want to reflect upon is not only more recent, but it's the most deadly pandemic to strike in the history of the modern world referring to the outbreak of the so-called Spanish influenza that ravaged our world just over 100 years ago between 1918 and 1919, infecting about 500 million people and taking the lives, the conservative estimate, taking the lives of about 50 million people and probably, they say, more like 100 million people. In fact, if we are to adjust the ratio of the number who died over 100 years ago with the larger size of population we have in the world today, the number of those who died would be the equivalent of 350 million people today. Just like the coronavirus, the Spanish influenza, which actually probably started really in the United States, quickly spread around the world. But unlike a typical influenza, John Barry in his book, The Great Influenza, says that the typical flu has a fatality rate of about 0.1%, but the Spanish flu had a fatality rate of 2.5%, and that's just about the same fatality rate that comes based on the earlier numbers that were reported coming out of China. So it's no wonder in the situation that we live in today that the World Health Organization will be just as concerned about what this pandemic might mean for the history of our planet. Although there are several similarities between the coronavirus and the Spanish flu, there are actually two key differences. First, the Spanish flu was actually more fast-acting than the coronavirus. While some people would suffer for a long time horribly, many people died within 24 hours of those symptoms first appearing. There are stories that are told of people who would wake up one morning and not feel very well, head off to work, but never make it home because they died before their shift at work was over. But even more troublesome than the fast nature, the deadly nature of the Spanish flu, was the fact that instead of targeting people who were 65 years and older, it actually targeted those who were strong and healthy. They say that the most vulnerable age group were people who were aged between 20 and 40 years of age, and those who were under 5. And in the majority of the cases, the cause of death was not always influenza, but often the bacterial pneumonia that would follow the virus itself. And so when you go back and you consider the number of people, the young people that died one after another, and you look through the pages of newspapers and magazines, you find page after page, after page, after page, after page of obituaries in small print in newspapers, in journals and even in magazines like the Adventist Review and Herald back from 1918. As I was going through, looking through some of those old church papers, I came across the December 12, 1918 Adventist Review. And in that Advent Review, it also had pages of those who had died. And three caught my attention, three that are a sample of many that I saw in those pages. First, Smalley, Orrin A. Smalley, was born in Alden, Michigan 26 years ago and died at Camp Custer, a victim of influenza, October 22, 1918. He was a consistent member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and died trusting in his Savior. The next one, Erickson. Alice Elizabeth Johnson was born in New Denmark, Wisconsin, August 9, 1898. She was married to Elmer M. Erickson just two months before her death, which occurred at Emanuel Missionary College, today Andrews University, November 3, 1918. As the result of an attack of influenza, her husband, her parents, her three sisters, and her three brothers mourn, but they sorrow in hope." And the third one, Robison. Mrs. Lou Adams Robison died at Shell City, Missouri, November 1st, 1918 of influenza. Her little son, aged one year, died the following day of the same disease. And on November 6th, Edwin Francis, her other son, aged three years, also fell a victim to the dread epidemic. The husband, and the father is thus left alone. Sister Robinson was a Seventh-day Adventist from childhood and fell asleep in hope. Tragic examples of the more than 50 million people who lost their life. With so many doctors and nurses caught up with the war effort overseas on a military basis, they tell us that hospitals were understaffed and didn't have enough space for the number of people that just kept coming and coming and looking for help. In small towns like Walla Walla, we're told that Walla Walla College at the time shut down for about a week and then dismissed students over Thanksgiving break and on through Christmas break. But it really wasn't as deadly as it was in the large cities, particularly the large cities on the East Coast, cities like Boston and New York. But in 1918, the hardest hit of all the cities in the nation was the city of Philadelphia. We're told that several days before before a great liberty parade, that a group of medical professionals urged the city officials of Philadelphia to cancel the parade because the risk was too great for the spread of the pandemic. But the city officials believed that the parade needed to go on, and so they rejected that advice. And no more than just a few days after that parade, we're told that tens of thousands of cases of the Spanish flu erupted across the city of Philadelphia. We're told that over the course of roughly six to eight weeks, 6,000 people in Philadelphia died as a result of the flu. But what's striking and what caught my attention is that of those who died, 11,000 died in October alone. As you can imagine, the bodies of the dead began to pile up so quickly that they began to stack them up on the streets. They were stacked on porches. They were even stored in the rooms of the homes of individuals who had lost loved ones. There just wasn't enough undertakers and grave diggers and casket makers to keep up. And eventually, like we see in New York today, the dead had to be buried in large, massive graves. It turned out that the greatest need in the cities across the nation, in the city of Philadelphia was not so much doctors, but the greatest need was nurses. Nurses who could provide the sick with the the tender care that they needed during that difficult time. In fact, we're told that the situation became so desperate that the Red Cross actually appealed to anyone with two hands and a willingness to work to come and serve as uh, nurses in hospitals or in home care units. But as nurses and doctors continued to die, people were too afraid to respond. And many of those who did respond were so overcome with the sight of death and destruction that many of them would not come back after their first shift, and many did not even finish their first shift. Fear so gripped the lives of people living in Philadelphia that few cared for anyone but themselves, and perhaps maybe those they loved most, but even of those, many chose to forsake and desert their own families. People were so afraid of becoming infected that many people who were quarantined because of the flu actually starved to death in their homes because friends and family were too afraid to bring them food lest they might be contaminated to themselves. We're told that calls for people to take in the starving children of their neighbors whose parents were sick or who had died largely went unheeded. Yet it was at this moment in time when when humanity seemed to have reached its lowest point that a group of Christians in Philadelphia stepped forward to help, just like they did at the time of the plague of Cyprian. The group of those who stepped forward was a group of 2,000 nuns. Although the sisters had little experience in the outside world, with actually no, hardly any medical training, they still responded to the call to help. And as they responded to that call, one of the nurses talked about how afraid she was before she went into that first shift. Pages of history record her response as follows. She says, I was struck at first with a fearful dread. For I never came in close contact with death but once in my life. But realizing what must be done, I quickly put on my gown and mask. And being assigned to the women's ward, I began my duties. And one nun after another did her duty in an act of sacrificial love. They signed up for 12-hour shifts, navigating the empty and deserted fearful streets of Philadelphia. They were dressed in white gowns and wearing gauze masks over their face. They changed bed bed linen. They served hot soup. They mixed medicine. They cared for children whose parents had died because of the influenza. And in the end, we're told that those nuns even gave their lives. Twenty-two of those nurses died as a result of contracting the Spanish influenza. But those nuns were not the only Christians to answer that call to serve. We're told that roughly the same time, just a few hours away, in the city of South Lancaster, Massachusetts, there was another surprising group of Seventh-day Adventists who answered that call to serve. We're told that the situation in South Lancaster was also horrible. Doctors and nurses were dying, the dead were piling up, and the pages of the Advent Review and Herald even mentions a family of six who were entirely blotted out because of the disease. And in that group of people, we're told that the South Lancaster Adventist Academy, which had just been uh, become a junior college in 1918, and although it had partially closed down, that there were still many students in those dormitories. And we're told that those students became infected with the Spanish flu, and many of them came to the verge of death itself. But what seems to have made the difference in saving the lives of those students was the care they received from a group of female students who volunteered to meet the needs of their fellow students. We're told after being quickly instructed in the basic skills of practical nursing that those young women stepped forward and began to care for the needs of their fellow students. They kept them well hydrated and began to apply hot and cold fomentations to their chest to try to help with the respiratory problems that was associated with the influenza. According to one of the school officials, local doctors who had patients dying day by day marveled at the fact that in our large and crowded dormitories with practically no professional nurses in attendance, we had no fatalities. But what was really surprising to me was that that same group of young women, women who were roughly the same age of those who are most susceptible to contracting and dying from the influenza, did not quit when their friends recovered. Instead, when the outbreak was at its worst, and when medical care was next to impossible to find, that those same young women put on protective face masks and entered into the homes where highly infectious diseases were ravaging people to care for the sick and to care for the dying. And according to the report, it was the work of those young women that played an important role and saving the lives of many people in the community of South Lancaster. It should be no surprise that the report ends with this statement. The school is more widely and favorably known in the community than before as a result of its activities during these weeks. What a powerful, powerful testimony. So in conclusion, what will these unprecedented times that we live in reveal about us? Will it reveal that we sought to escape from the reality of this world by trying to consume more video content than any other generation before us? Will it show that we binged on cable news or entertained ourselves to death through Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Disney Disney Plus or Apple Plus or YouTube Plus or whatever? Or will it show that as individuals or as a church that we were so overcome with fear that we locked ourselves behind closed doors, buried our talents, and truly allowed the coronavirus stay-at-home restrictions to close the ministry of the church? Or by God's grace, will it reveal the truth that as Christians that we are the body of Christ, and like generations before us, we rose up at this time to demonstrate that to the world around us. Now, I realize that times have changed, that the circumstances, the response of Christians at the time of the plague of Cyprian will be different than the response of us today. The time of Cyprian's Plague, there was no hospitals and no teams of professional doctors and nurses to care for the sick. So the church rose up to meet that need. And during the time of the Spanish influenza, there was such a shortage of nurses that, again, the church had to rise to meet that need. So far, that need is not needed today. But today, as Christians, we can encourage and pray for those on the front lines in our medical facilities, for the doctors and the nurses who are risking their lives on a daily basis to care for the sick. We should offer words of encouragement for those who are trying to make life go on like normal, those who work in the grocery lines, those who drive trucks, those who deliver the mail, those who care for the needs, the everyday needs of society to make our life more normal. But as Christians, We shouldn't just sit on the sidelines as grateful spectators. We're called to bear witness. We're called to be in the game. And so while the need in the medical field may not be like it was in the past, there is a great need to reach out to those who feel isolated with cabin fever because they've been stuck in their homes, to minister to those who've lost jobs or seen their salaries cut, or those who are struggling with the loss of family members, And those needs will not disappear in a matter of weeks. Those needs, I believe, are going to continue in the months and even years to come. I know of a husband and wife team who've made it their ministry to, to, to deliver small loaves of bread to the homes of those who are discouraged of others who are dedicating their time in soup kitchens or picking up and dropping off groceries and supplies. And I've even seen some people going around delivering Sabbath school lessons to those who are able to get in and get it themselves. In addition to providing food for hungry students, our own pantry here, Eden's Pantry, is not only serving our students, but I was told last night that we're serving 175 families in our community. As we saw earlier in our announcements, that there's 30 to, formerly, 30 to 40 preschool families who the United Way has asked our church to be the donation center to reach out to this community who needs our help. So the world does need our help. Our community needs our help. And this church needs your help. If You want to help, there's all kinds of opportunities. Just contact one of the pastors on our staff but we also need your help financially in order to continue to minister to those who suffered from the flood, the challenges of the flood just a few weeks ago, but also those now who need help with rent and groceries and utilities. Jesus said that times of adversity are an opportunity for us to bear witness. May the COVID-19 pandemic reveal that each of us did just that like the generations that have gone before us.